church, would you remain standing with me as we read Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night's visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So every time that Jesus would deliver straightforward teaching about what awaited him there in Jerusalem, his disciples would immediately respond in just the most asinine ways possible. In chapter 8, Jesus gave the first of these proclamations that upon arrival in Jerusalem that he would be arrested, he would be beaten, and he would be killed. That on the third day he would rise again. And to this, Peter responded, no sir, not on my watch. Then in chapter 9, as they made their final trek through Galilee, Jesus again made the second of these predictions. The disciples, they responded, by arguing about which of them was greatest in the kingdom of God. Then last week, as we gathered together for Easter Sunday, we studied the third of Jesus' predictions, the most detailed of his predictions about all that would happen to him once he arrived in Jerusalem. And so, as you would imagine, right on cue, the disciples respond, showing they have absolutely no clue what he's talking about completely missing the mark altogether it's it's almost comical the way in which these men can miss the mark so badly almost I say because I see so much of myself in them and their hardened hearts that lead them to just stupidity and pride and self-centeredness and that really is what the root of this problem is it's hardened hearts the problem isn't that that they had a, a lack of access to information it wasn't a lack of intellect they had all the opportunities in the world Of course, this gospel has to be preached. The gospel must be brought before men. It's by that call that God brings men to life. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in one they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? But ultimately, even as they walked with the very Son of God, they saw the miracles, the workings. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the sacrifices. They had the teaching straight from the mouth of the Son of God himself, and still they continued to not understand what he spoke about. They continued to walk in confusion and selfishness and pride, all because of hardened hearts. Paul seems to sum this up for us pretty well in his letter to the Ephesians. He's talking about a situation with regards to Gentiles, but really this speaks to everyone apart from the working of God. In Ephesians 4.18, he says this, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart you got to see this. They're darkened in their hearts. 
They're alienated from God. They're darkening their understanding. Excuse me. They're alienated from God, alienated from the life that only he can give. All of this comes as a result of their ignorance. But what does Paul tell us the source of their ignorance is? Is it lack of intellect? Is it lack of access to knowledge? Is it lack of the ability to respond? No, the answer is because of their hardened hearts. It's hardened hearts which lead to confusion. It's hardened hearts which lead to pride. It's hardened hearts which lead to a lack of understanding. This world is so upside down, they completely focus in on this information. If we can just get people to hear new information, to learn new thoughts, to practice new patterns, and they never address the real root of the problem. It's the hearts of men. This is what Jesus had come to do. Yes, he had called these men to himself. Yes, he delivered to them the gospel. He had called them to turn, repent, be saved. But ultimately, apart from changed hearts, changed lives, the kind of work that only God could do, they were only going to continue on in their confusion. And so as Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem, preparing to lay down his life for the sake of sinners, he continues to give them these touches. He continues to work on their hearts. He continues to bring them to a clear understanding of his gospel. So with that, I invite you to stand to your feet, please. We return to the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel. We begin in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left, it is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they be began to become indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we need, we need your continued touch, your continued illumination, your continued working in our hearts to rightly hear, understand, and respond to your holy word. That is our desire this morning. We seek to hear from you. Speak now. Help us to hear. To your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So begin like this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. So as we discussed last week, the crowd is moving south towards Jerusalem. Perhaps they've already made their westward turn where they will cross the Jordan River, come in right about Jericho and head north into, into Jerusalem. But whatever the case, Jesus is marching ahead. The group is behind, and Jesus has got a determined stride. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly the purpose, and he will not be deterred. Now, we read last week that the group, the, the, the crowds that were with him, they were afraid. They were afraid because of the uncertainty of what lied ahead. They were afraid, I'm sure, because of the idea that a revolt might, might rise up as a result of what Jesus comes to do. And then the response of the Romans as they come in to squash this. 
we read that the disciples, that they were amazed. They were amazed that Jesus wasn't shrinking back. They were amazed that he would have such determination after telling them so clearly what it is. But the picture is clear that Jesus is marching on ahead of the group. And so I picture James and John, they're having to run ahead. They're having to jog a little bit to get away from the others and get up into earshot of Jesus. And they wouldn't have had any hesitation about this because James and John, they served as two-thirds of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, those three that had been given special access to Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. These were the ones that were there with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. These were the ones that were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus pulled back the veil and revealed his glory. These would be the ones that were with him in the garden on the night of his betrayal when Jesus laid down his life. And so these men, they had been set apart. They had been given special access to Jesus. And so they wouldn't have had any hesitation about running forward to make this request to Jesus. But you're going to notice something here. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where we hear about the sons of thunder. James and John, but we don't hear anything about Peter. So they come running ahead. James and John come jogging up to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, this request really is as childish as it sounds. Jesus, we've got a request. Just say yes. We'll tell you later what it is that we want. We want to present this request. We want you to commit to it, and then you can hear what this is. Now, you've got to give them credit for boldness, but you can see just in the way that they ask this question, you can see that they know that Jesus is not going to be pleased with what they ask. You can see that they know that it is not right what they ask. This is what little children do. Little boys go, and they try to convince their mom and dad to commit to something because they know that they won't approve of what the request is after the fact. So they come running up, and they try to trap Jesus to back him into a corner. So Jesus, verse 36, he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't bite. Now, he doesn't ask this question because he doesn't know. Jesus, of course, knows the hearts of men. He knows the request, but he's going to make them vocalize this. He's going to make them say it out loud. Incidentally, this is a question, the very same question that Jesus is going to ask in a couple of weeks when we're introduced to a man called Blind Bartimaeus. What is it that you want me to do for you? Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left in glory. If you're going to ask the Son of God for a signed blank check, you better go big, right? Like, I'm not just going to ask that you feed us some more of that bread. We're not going to ask that you do a few more miracles. We're going to ask, Jesus, when you come into glory, would you grant us a sit, one at your right and one at your left? Now, Matthew's gospel, in his parallel, he tells us that the boy's mother is with them. This is not an insignificant fact. You see, not only were James and John committed followers of Jesus Christ, but their mother is too. Matthew 15, uh, Mark 15, Matthew 24, they tell us that their mother, her name was Salome. We know that she was a follower of Jesus Christ. She was one that was there, one of the women that was there when Jesus died. We also know that she was among the very first that got to see him. She was one that went with the ladies with the spices to go and anoint Jesus' body on the morning of the resurrection. She was a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And depending on how you read John 19, 25, it's very likely that this woman, the mother of James and John, Salome, that she was Mary's sister. That would make her Jesus' aunt. And so what you have here is James and John, members of the inner circle, probably cousins of Jesus Christ, along with his aunt, kneeling before him. Now clearly, you'll remember back when Jesus was teaching in the house and his family they had come up from Nazareth and they stood outside the door and they said send message to Jesus that his family's here that his mother and his brothers are here and what was Jesus response this is my brothers these are my sisters these are my family don't think that bloodlines give you access to me it's those that sit at my feet and do the things that I command they are my family you'll also think back I would imagine to the rich young ruler who also came and kneeled in the dirt before Jesus Christ coming humbly 
coming with the right posture, and yet he walked away sad. You see, it's not just having humility. It's not just having sincere desire. It's not just having some bloodline. It's those that sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and by his touch, by his hand, by his working in your life, do the things that he has called you to do. Those are his brothers. Those are his sisters. Those are the ones that have access to the kingdom of heaven. So they say to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Glory, that's one of those churchy words. Any of you that have grown up in church for any amount of time, you hear about the glory of God, and almost immediately your heart and your mind go to the Shekinah, that radiant light, that glowing light that radiates from the presence of God, that light which left Moses as he came down from the Mount Sinai glowing from his interaction with God. We immediately think about James and John and Peter, what they saw there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark records it like this, that he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. But dear friends, we must remember that even this light is a thing which God created in the beginning. The light isn't the glory of God. It's the way in which he makes that glory known. It's the way in which he manifests that glory before humans that we could see, that we could know, that we could trust in his glory. We talked some time back when we studied on the Mount, about the Mount of Transfiguration. We studied the Hebrew word for glory, and it is kabod. It's kabod. The word can mean weightier. It can mean heavy. You see, back in those days, much like today, a man's honor amongst other men, it was very strongly tied to his wealth, to that which he had. And wealth, it was tied to the weight. You weighed things to determine what they were worth. And so, therefore, when we think of kabod, when we think of a man's glory, we don't think of some particular trait. We might do well to think about... Rather, the, the sum of what he has, the weight of all that he has, the scale, the scope of all that he has. So when we think in these terms about the glory of God, we do well not to think about just one singular attribute, not his love, not his mercy, not his power, not his wisdom, not his knowledge, not even his holiness, but rather the sum, the weight, the scope of all those traits, all those attributes, all those characteristics that we find in God. And as we've talked about, God is not only infinite in scope, infinite in scale, infinite in his characteristics and his attributes, but every single one of these attributes he possesses to the infinite degree. I was thinking about it this week that if you have infinity of infinity, David was reading earlier, he's talking about 10,000 of 10,000s, right? You start doing the math on this, it gets real big real quick. And if you're talking about an infinite God that is infinite in his characteristics and infinite in his traits and infinite, we will never reach the end of finding out all that he is, infinite in his nature, and in every single one of those characteristics that he possesses them to the infinite degree. Can you imagine the weight? What does infinity feathers weigh? Infinity, right? The weight of all that God is. You wonder why we, we, talk, we talk about man being crushed beneath the weight of God. You wonder why we, we talk about men falling on their face and on their knees before God. This is the kabod. This is the glory. This is the weight. This is the majesty of God. Then as we come to the New Testament, we find the word doxa there. It's praise, renown, worship. It's where we get our word doxology from. So when we combine these two ideas and we start talking about the glory of God, we're not talking about adding to his greatness. We're not talking about adding to his weight. We're not talking about elevating his character. We're talking about the proper response to the weight, to the majesty, to the, to the heaviness of all that God is. We're talking about the proper response as we stand in awe of the infinitely glorious God. That's what we're talking about. And this is what John has in mind when he says, we make this request to you, God, Jesus, as you come into your glory. 
in your glory would you grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left. They're talking about that time when that which has always been Jesus, his glory, that which he pulled back the veil and revealed to them there on the Mount of Transfiguration, where that would be known to all the earth. When every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess. When Jesus will truly reveal his nature for all mankind, where there will be no denials. Salome, she talks about this. I go back and forth from Salome and Salome. Their mother, James and John's mother, in Matthew, what she says is that, would you grant my sons this as you come into your kingdom? Knowing that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, it is then that they will see this glory throughout all the earth. Not just in peaks, not just in images, not just in little bitty instances, but his glory will shine throughout all the earth. And they get at least this right. Of all the things that the disciples miss, of all the things that James and John miss the mark on, we've got to at least give them credit for understanding this. That the one that stands before him, even though he looks like an ordinary man, even though he's come in the form of a servant, that he is the glorious God. That he is the God deserving of all worship and all praise and all renown and all worship throughout all the earth because of his very nature. Because of the weight. Because of the substance of who he is. They get at least this piece right. And we have to imagine as they stood there, they probably had in mind, Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man in verse 45 here. Consistently, his, fir- his perfect, or his, uh, his most persistent self-proclamation as the son of man. Almost indefinitely, these men, their minds would have gone to that scripture that David read for us. Out of uh, Daniel 7, where we read, And the son of man, he will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. They had this image of the Son of Man coming into his glory, the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, and the whole earth falling down in worship. A dominion, a kingdom that knows no end. They had their their hopes, they had their eyes set on something much more than just a kingdom there in this town called Jerusalem, the city called Jerusalem. They had their eyes set on something much more than just ruling the nation of Israel. They had their eyes set on a king that would rule all the earth. A king before whom no one would be able to stand, no one would be able to resist power and might and majesty that knows no end. They got at least this right. And dear friends, I would argue with you that some of us, we would do well just to leave this place, go into our quiet rooms, and just meditate on this truth. Do you on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, do you live in light of his infinite glory? Do you live in light of the fact that he will return not as a child but as a triumphant king where he will destroy all evil from the earth? He will cast it from his very presence and only those that are found in him will stand. That we will not only stand but that we will reign. That we too will be glorified. Do you live in light of this? Or do you continue to be stuck in this image of this Jesus as just a nice guy, a good example, a smart teacher? If you come into this place hoping to interact with this glorious Jesus Christ, seeking to worship this glorious Jesus Christ, falling down under the weight, the kabod, the the infinite weight of all that Jesus Christ is. Some of us completely missed this mark, but these men, at least they got this right. And in light of this, in anticipation and hope of this, they say, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. You see, James and John, we've talked about this, just like the other disciples. They believed that what they were going to see in Jerusalem, despite all of Jesus' clear teaching, they believed that what they were going to see in Jerusalem was an earthly coronation. They believed that Jesus was going to take an earthly throne at that moment and that his glory was just going to flood the earth. They completely somehow missed all the rest of what he had to say. And they wanted to make certain that once they arrived in Jerusalem, that their places were secure. The positions of power and authority at the right and the left hand of Jesus Christ. Now we see why Peter wasn't invited to the party. There's only two seats. 
These men wanted to get a jump on everybody else and make sure that they got a bug in Jesus' ear that surely they deserve this. These two places of honor. Who, why wouldn't they, right? Not only are they a part of the inner, not only are they a part of the apostles, not only are they a part of the inner circle, but their blood, their family with Jesus Christ. If anybody deserved, they've been faithfully following him for three years. If anybody deserved to sit at these positions of power at the right and the left hand of Jesus, shouldn't it have been these men? Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Now there are a lot of things about Jesus Christ that are challenging, and we know we know that Jesus is more than just an example. We know that he is our Lord, he is our master, he is our king. We know that he is much more than just a good example, but he is an example. That we are called to imitate him. That we are called as any that would seek to be found in him. Any of us that would say that we abide in him, we must walk as he walked. And of all the ways in which Jesus Christ walked, his humility, his tenderness, his compassion, it challenges me the most. There's a show, I don't do plugs for shows much, but there's a show a lot of you probably watch called The Chosen where they, they have this dramatic telling of Jesus Christ and it's, it's plausible, right? We'll give it that. There's some stuff that's dead on out of scripture and then the rest of the stuff is just kind of, yeah, it could have happened that way, but it's clean, it's good entertainment, at least get your mind thinking about Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you though, the thing that gets me the most about this show, about this series, is just it's one thing to read about the humility of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to read about his tenderness and his compassion and his love, but to kind of see it on a screen. Again, you know that's not, this, you know, this isn't word for word. This isn't some transcript of things Jesus had said. They don't know what Jesus looked like. I promise you he didn't speak English with an Arabic accent, but the reality is as you, as you see the thing on the screen, you see his tenderness and his meekness. And if there's ever been a man that should have been able to just bring the thunder on these idiots, it was him. And yet we see this passion as he looks to him. He says, my children, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't even know what it is that you're asking for. Because Jesus had made quite clear that there is no glory without suffering. Over and over and over again. In his own life and in the call to these men. He had said that if any would call themselves disciples, they must take up their cross. They must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily. And follow after me. That the path to glory is always a path through suffering, through pain, through sacrifice. That there is no other way. And church, you got to understand that the reason I stand in this pulpit and I say this over and over and over again is not because I'm a man that endures well through suffering. I'm a baby. You want to find out? Just get me sick. Give me a bug and all of a sudden it's the end of the world. Why do bad things happen to good people? No one has had it as hard as me. Look at me. I've got a stomach bug. I don't suffer well. I don't endure well. I say these things before you so that you can spur me on. So when a day of suffering comes, because guys, real suffering is coming. I'm more convinced of it than ever before. Real persecution and real suffering are coming. And I'm pleading with you as the church, as our people, as our faith family, that when that day comes, you won't let me cower back. That you won't let each other cower back. That you'll remember the words of Jesus Christ, that this path, it's only going to be through great tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be great trial. There's going to be great suffering. There's going to be great sacrifice. There's going to be great pain and sacrifice and suffering and all the rest in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so he's telling them, you don't know what you're asking for. It's not because he hasn't told them. It's because they completely missed the, part, missed the mark, that there is no glory without suffering. You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? That's a tongue twister. To be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
Now, some people, they believe that what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the cup and he talks about baptism, that he's pointing forward to the ordinances of the church, that he's talking about literal water baptism, that he's talking about communion. He's talking about, about the Lord's Supper, but that doesn't appear to be it. Throughout Scripture, we read about the cup as a thing that is given by God to men. Sometimes it is joy and, and salvation, but more often than not, it's punishment and it's wrath. This is the connotation we read in the Psalms. Psalm 40, uh, 75, verse 8 says this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. So this cup is represented as something which will be given to the wicked, which will be given to the evil of the earth. Now Jeremiah speaks in more clear terms and more ferocious terms. He's talking to the nations of the world about what will happen after the 70 years of captivity endured by Israel. He says this. I jump around a bit in Jeremiah 25, but I begin in verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. Verse 27. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword that I'm sending on you. Verse 28. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. This is not an escapable thing. This is not an optional thing for the wicked of the world. For those that are found apart from faith, for those that have not been joined in Jesus Christ, this cup is not an optional. He doesn't come to you and say, hey, would you please drink this cup of my wrath? And they go, nah, 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 I think I'm going to pass. I'm all good here. He says, you must drink. And, of course, we know that for those that are found in Christ Jesus, the cup has already been consumed. That Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, the night before his crucifixion, it was then that he cried out, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup was the wrath of his father. The cup was the punishment due to sin and sinners because of their rebellion against him. This was the cup that he's talking about. And he stands here perhaps just over a week from that point. Just over a week from the point where he's going to lay down his life on the cross. And he looks to these men and he asks them, are you able to drink this cup? He asks them as well, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now he's not thinking about Christian baptism here. He's not thinking about the baptism for the repentance of sin that came through John the Baptist. He's not even thinking about the proselyte baptism, that submersion that foreigners would go through if they desired to follow after Yahweh. He is talking about submersion, though. He's talking about to be plunged. Baptizo is the word. It means to be plunged, to be dipped, to be dunked, to be pushed all the way down under something. Specifically, in this instance, it's that which awaits him in Jerusalem. Jesus would say in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This baptism. Jesus isn't talking about going back to the Jordan River and seeing John again. He's talking about all that awaits him, the suffering, the pain, the trial, the persecution, the death that awaits him. You'll notice that this is a, a passive term. He says, with which I am baptized. Of course, he was in complete control. He was calling the shots. He was the one moving all creation towards this moment. And yet, these were things that were going to be done to him, specifically his death. That, so that when we think about drinking the cup, when we think about undergoing the baptism, in the case of what Jesus is talking about, it's all that he wrote about last week. He's saying, I'm headed to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to drink a cup. I'm heading to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to undergo a baptism. Can you do this? Can you drink this cup? Can you undergo this baptism? And church, knowing what we know today... We know that Jesus Christ himself, again, there in the garden, he says, Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. I'd rather not drink the cup. In his humanity, 
He knew that he didn't want to undergo this thing, but he knew there was no other way. Knowing that this was more than just a physical anguish, more than just a physical pain, that this, was so, this would be a, the wrath of God poured out upon his soul for the sake of sinners. And we sit here today thinking these men couldn't have possibly understood that. Because if they had, if they had any idea what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem, if they had any idea what he meant when he talked about the cup, they would have said so quickly, verse 39, we are able. These dudes, man. Like, like in some ways you, you, you sympathize with them, right? I mean, you see yourself all over it. Like when the Samaritans rejected Jesus and they looked at him and said, okay, well, can we call down fire from heaven now just to burn these dudes up? I mean, I, I see myself in those instances where I feel like God needs me to fight for him for some reason or he needs me to get offended on his behalf and call down angels from heaven to just destroy all his enemies. And I see myself in this desire to be first, to be at the top, to be at the lead, be the leader of the pack, to be seated on the right and the left-hand side. But in this, this cockiness that, yes, we are able. We're able to undergo whatever it is that lies ahead. We're able to charge ahead. Then he tells them, are you able to drink this cup? You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking for, so let me give you another shot. Are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to undergo the baptism? And they go, yeah, no problem. Piece of cake, we got this. They're just completely tone deaf. And I mean, maybe they thought that Jesus was talking in hyperbole. Maybe they, like so many who call themselves Christians today, they just, they thought that what it means to carry your cross is nothing more than just an inconvenience, just a minor annoyance, that denying yourself, taking up your cross, that drinking the cup, that undergoing the baptism, that Jesus, it's not really going to be that bad. You wouldn't really call me to give that much. You wouldn't really call me to lay down my life physically. You wouldn't really call me to give up my freedom. You wouldn't really call me not to demand that people respect me the way I deserve to be respected. So you're just talking about tacking your name onto my life the way I already enjoy it, right? You're just talking about continuing to walk in the comforts of this world, but I wear a new T-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy now, right? They didn't understand what he was talking about. So clearly these men had either overestimated themselves or more likely they had underestimated the cost of following after him. They didn't understand, so they cried out without missing a beat, we are able. And Jesus had just talked about the impossibility of all this. You remember it was just a few weeks back where he said that with man it is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is possible to have eternal life. It is impossible to be saved. And now these guys, they think not only can we enter into the kingdom of, of, of heaven, but we can have the positions at the right and the left-hand side. Just throw down the gauntlet, Jesus, and we'll run through it. Whatever it is that lies ahead, we can do it. If they had any sense at all, they would have cried out, no. No, we can't do this. You know we can't do it. You've already said it's impossible. But instead, so cocky, yes, absolutely, Jesus. What is it? We'll do it. We want these positions. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. He said, yes, to some degree, this is true. Now, not as they stood on this day. As they stood on this day, what was going to happen was when Jesus was arrested, they were going to run and hide like little girls. They weren't going to be able to endure any suffering apart from the working of God. It was only by the power of God as they brought them to be a new creation fill them with the Holy Spirit that they would be able to charge forward and drink the cup and undergo the baptism. Of course, it wouldn't be the same as his. The cup that they would drink, it would not be filled with the wrath of God because Jesus had already fully satisfied that. He drank it down so there was not a drop, turned it over and said, it is finished. So the cup that they drink, it wouldn't be salvific. It wouldn't be for the sake of their redemption, but it would be real affliction. It would be real pain. It would be real loss. It would be real sorrow. And they would be plunged. 
they would go all the way down and all the way through the suffering, the torment, even the death that awaited those that would follow after Jesus Christ. Now we know that tradition tells us that the Apostle John, that he lived to some ripe old age, and yet his life was one filled with sorrow, with imprisonment, with hatred from the world. We know that James, that he was killed by the hand of Herod Agrippa. Acts 12 tells us that. He ran a sword through him. Remember Paul when we got to go see the play? We talked about the place where this, this very thing happened. But there that Herod Agrippa would run the sword through this man. He says, yes, you're going to drink the cup. You're going to undergo the baptism. He's confirming for them, yes, the life of following after me, it truly is a life of suffering. It truly is a life of pain. It truly is a life of, of loss. It truly is a life of hatred. I don't die. I don't drink the cup. I don't undergo the baptism so that your life will be easy. I drink the cup. I undergo the baptism so that you can endure through the suffering. I drink the cup and I undergo the baptism so that you may know that your suffering is not for nothing. So that you may know that as you pass through this that you too shall come into glory. That's the difference between us and the world. The world is full of suffering. Again, nobody gets to opt out. Nobody gets to say, okay, I'm not going to follow Jesus and then there will be no suffering in this lifetime. No, suffering is common to man. The question is, do you suffer with him? Knowing that as we suffer with Jesus Christ, whether it's the persecution of the world that hates us for the sake of our faith, whether it's just suffering through ongoing chronic illness, whether it's suffering through a marriage that isn't what you hoped it would be, whether it's suffering through being broke and not knowing where tomorrow's food's going to come from, whether it's suffering through everybody that you once called friend now cursing your very name, the question is, will you do this in a way that declares to the world, I cherish Jesus Christ more than all the rest of that? That's the opportunity that he gives you in suffering. He gives you the opportunity to say, I trade all of this for more of him. I delight in him more than any of the rest so that I can sing songs of joy while I lose all these things that I was going to lose eventually anyway. What is suffering? Isn't it just the loss of stuff that's all going to be burned up in the end anyway? So he says, I'm going to give you the opportunity today to let loose of some of those things through this act that we call suffering. And you must know that you will find joy if you delight in me more than this. If you believe my promises that by keeping your eyes fixed on me, by singing praises to me, by continuing to worship me, by continuing to declare my goodness in the middle of this loss, you must know that there will be gain at the end of this thing. You're going to lose it all anyway, but you can lose it today and store for yourself treasures in heaven. Look forward to a day of glory. That's the opportunity that suffering presents us. So you must ask yourself today, are you prepared? Have you counted the cost? Because there is specific suffering. There is particular suffering that comes with the Christian life. Because while the rest of the world suffers, they get to grumble. While the rest of the world suffers, they get to fight and scratch and claw and demand their own way. While the rest of the world suffers, they get to moan and blame everybody else around them. While the rest of the world suffers, they get to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. We don't get to suffer like that. But dear friends, there is joy in that. But if you counted the cost, if you asked yourself, am I really ready to be baptized like this? Am I really ready to drink the cup like this? Or have you fallen for the lies of the enemy? If you've fallen for the lies of the enemy, it's not going to be that bad. If you've fallen for the lies of the enemy by looking around at this soft thing that the Americans call church, this watered-down, man-centered, false gospel that tells you it's never going to be that bad. God would never call you to truly suffer like that. If you've fallen for those kind of lies, or if you truly counted the cost and believed that, yes, I will give whatever it takes, my life, my freedom, my name, my reputation, my fortune, my comforts. And dear friends, I know how my tone changes. I know how harsh I am when I speak about this false gospel. I know that um, 
I know my, my tone elevates. I try to be cognizant of that. I, I know that some of you may find me harsh at times, and maybe I am harsh at times, and that is not my goal. But dear friends, I need to tell you that I think that I think that this watered-down gospel that is being preached all throughout this world, I believe that it is more damning than all the brothels and all the bars in this world combined. As men and women by the millions charge off towards hell, feeling safe and secure because they have added the name of Jesus Christ to their long list of comforts in this world. Because they believe that they can continue to live just the way they always have while claiming the name of Jesus Christ and believing they've secured for themselves a place in heaven. And it terrifies me for you, it terrifies me for me, it terrifies me for my children, it terrifies me for all those that call themselves Christian, that walk through this earth. They show up in places like this, and then pastors stand up, and they give them three points and some funny stories, pat them on the back, tell them how good they are, and then send them home. And he's saying there will be real cost. There will be real loss. You will suffer. Will you suffer well? Will you suffer and endure to the end? Are you going to suffer the way the rest of the world suffers? So Jesus, he looks at us, he looks to them, he says, will you drink this cup? This is the same question as call the call to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow after him. This is the same, same request and if we have any sense about us, if you have any sense about us, about what lies ahead, if we have any self-awareness about us, the response would be no, because we are weak. We know that we can't. We want this. We cherish you more than these other things, or at least we want to cherish you more than these other things. We know that there's more joy found in suffering for you. We know that there's more joy found in losing all the rest of this world and having you than anything we could ever imagine, but we know that we are weak and we are stupid and we are faithless. We know that we do not have the ability to endure. We do not have the ability to press on. We know that it's one thing to sit in this room right here and say we're going to suffer for Jesus Christ. It's another thing when we stand looking at those waters. It's another thing when the cup is passed across the table before us. That's the question. And so if we have any sense about us, we cry out in this moment and we say, Jesus Christ, no, we can't. We know that we can't, but we know that you can. We trust in you and your abilities and not ourselves and our own abilities. We trust that if we throw ourselves upon you wholly and completely, that you will be the one that carries us through all of this. And dear friends, you've got to understand me. It is all. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's that poem that pastors like to quote, and it's, I've seen it more often than not on posters, but it's the one about like footprints in the sand or something, you know, where it's like there's two sets of footprints in the sand, a guy's looking back at his life. And there's two sets of footprints in the sand, and then they get to the place where things are really hard, and then there's only one set of footprints. And the man looks at God and says, God, how could you abandon me when things are really tough? And, and God says, I didn't. I didn't abandon you then. That's where I picked you up and I carried you. And he realizes that in those moments of real trial and suffering, that was where Jesus carried him. That's a lie. He carried you all the way. You think when times are easy, you're just strolling along in your own power? You think when there's no real suffering that you've got things under control? Who lied to you? You can do nothing. I can do nothing. We wake up every single day and we fall on our knees and we say, Jesus, apart from you, I can't take a breath. 
Apart from you, I can't get up and walk. I cannot eat. I cannot provide for my family. I cannot do the right thing. I cannot want to do the right thing. I can't, cannot show up and worship you. I cannot love my wife. I cannot care for my kids. I can do nothing apart from you. And would I stand before you and swear that I can suffer well without you? That I can endure to the end without you? No. We throw ourselves upon him wholly and completely and say, Jesus, you know me better than I know myself. And I don't even like what I see of myself. And you need to understand this, guys. I say these things, and people go, man, why are you so hard? Why are you so hard? In Christ Jesus, you are a new creation, and he is doing incredible works in you. And so when I talk about the, 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 the sin and the darkness and the ugliness that resides within me, I'm not talking about the things that Jesus Christ has done. I'm talking about my old fleshly nature. I'm talking about who I am apart from his work. I'm talking about who I am apart from his filling of his spirit. I'm talking about what I would go back to like that if he were to leave me. We throw ourselves upon him. We say we can't. And we're going to unpack next week as we, we really dissect verse 45 because that's really, verse 45 of Mark 10 is a linchpin for all of this gospel. The reality that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to talk about what that means. Number one, what it means to have been ransomed. Who did he ransom us from and what was the price and what is the outcome and what does it mean to be a new creation in him? What does it mean to be set free from these things and how are to walk in the power and the victory that is his? But we're also going to talk about the fact that it's only by his working that we can press on. It is only by his working that we can suffer and continue. We're going to really dissect that next week. But dear friends, you've got to understand that the people that come to the call of gospel, the gospel call of Jesus Christ, people that hear the call to repent and believe and their first thought is, yeah, got this, piece of cake. My heart is terrified for them. Because those are the people that you find pledging that, Jesus Christ, I will follow you to the ends of the earth, but they can never be bothered to come into a place like this and worship. They say, Jesus Christ, I will lose everything for you, but I'm going to rob from you as I steal the tithe. Jesus Christ, I am willing to die for the sake of your name, but you got to know that I'm going to defend my own name every time it comes up. We don't count the cost. We don't weigh it out and determine, am I really willing to pay this price? Knowing that if we're honest, no, we can't, but he can. And so you see in this how every single part of this thing called salvation is accomplished in him. None of it in our own abilities. We can't even have the right desires apart from him. And these men should have fallen down on their face, but they didn't. So Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it's for the ones whom it has been prepared. So suffering and loss and death and all these things, these are all part of the Christian life, and we are guaranteed that we're going to go through these things, and we praise God when we endure, when we find ourselves fixating on him and glory, glorifying him and finding our joy in him, that these give us assurances that we are his. These give us assurances that he is leading us towards glory. He says these will all be things that will be carried out through your life, but you must know that they are not ways to earn anything in the kingdom of God. God doesn't look down and say, okay, who has suffered most for the sake of my kingdom? And then to those I will give my right hand and my left hand positions. He says, it is all the working of God. Just as entrance into the kingdom of God, it is election. It is choosing. It is God's sovereign work to bring men to this point. Now look, there will literally be two people, one sitting on Jesus' right and one sitting on Jesus' left, and we don't know who those are. Will it be James and John? Will it be Moses and Elijah? I'm going to say probably not. I'm going to say based on what Jesus has told us 
about the kingdom of heaven, based on the way he turns everything upside down, based on the way he talks about those who are last will be first, those who are first will be last, I imagine it's going to be some random lunch lady that nobody's ever heard of that faithfully served Jesus Christ for her entire life. Some dude in prison that gave his life to Jesus Christ and no one ever knew his name, and yet he faithfully served him all the days of, this, of his life. People that never had a pulpit, people that never had a public ministry, people that never did an interview, people that nobody ever wrote a book about, people that don't get praised on Facebook. I believe it's going to be some dude that you never heard of. You're going to get there, and yet because the God of the universe chose to not only save them from his wrath, he chose to write their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, he chose to reserve for them places in the kingdom of God, places of supreme honor at the left and at the right of Jesus Christ, all because of God's sovereign choice all because of his choosing, all because of the work he would do in their life, all because of the way he would endure them through the suffering, all the working of God. So that we get there and we see these dudes at the left and the right hand of Jesus Christ and we ain't there worshiping them, we're worshiping Jesus Christ who placed them there. We see that guy and we go, that dude's no different than me other than the working of God in his life. God's sovereign choice and election. He chose this man to sit here on this day. He wasn't the brightest. He wasn't the greatest. He wasn't the strongest. It was the working of God. That's the beauty of this whole thing. So we don't have to scratch and claw. Don't you see how this frees us up? You don't got to scratch and claw and fight for your places in the kingdom of God. You don't have to earn your entrance or your place or your rank. It's all his working. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, you saw this coming, right? And when the ten heard it, they became indignant. At James and John. Don't get it twisted. They weren't upset because they had offended Jesus. They were upset because they beat him to the punch. They thought of it before they did, before the others did. Peter, you'll remember, is probably the one that gave these words to John Mark, and you can imagine he was still had a little bit of tone in his voice when he remembered this story, right? He remembered how those jerks ran ahead and they tried to snatch that which was ours. They tried to claim for themselves these places in the kingdom. But this is what pride does. This is what self-focus does. This is what self-centeredness does. It leads us to step over others, even and especially those that are closest to us, even especially those that we are called to love. It drives you to completely step over them, looking out for our own interests. And this is in part why Jesus hates pride. Over and over again, he talks about the reality that he will humble the proud. In Proverbs 6, he talks about the reality that there are six things that he hates, seven things that are an abomination to him, and the very first thing, haughty eyes, arrogance, vanity, Pride, self-focus, these things are an abomination to God, and yet we celebrate them as a society. Do you realize that there are people in the school districts right now, there are people out there that are calling themselves counselors, there are people out there that are pouring into your children, that they're telling them that the only unforgivable sin in this world is to not think highly enough of themselves? The answer to all their problems is you just need more self-esteem. You won't ever find that in Scripture. You will never find a place in Scripture where you're called to esteem yourself more. You're called to esteem others. You're called to count others as more significant than yourselves. You're called to humble yourself and lay your life low. We're told that Jesus will oppose and he will humble those that are proud in this lifetime. And yet you've got a whole world out there telling your children they just need to be more proud and life will be better. And it's not just our children. Go on Facebook. Yes, queen! just a joke I'll tell you how pretty you are if you tell me how pretty I am tomorrow what do you think Matt it's all upside down you don't need more self-esteem you don't need to think more highly of yourself 
It's not the picture at all. Jesus talks about the reality. It's those that come humbly. It's the meek that will inherit the earth. And it's those that are humble that will be blessed. Those that recognize that we deserve nothing in this world. Again, the air in our, in our breath, of the, the, the breath in our lungs, the, the food on our tables, the relationships that we have. I mean, I think about this all the time. I told Amanda, I told her the sweetest thing I ever told her the other day, and she laughed. I gave her a hug in the closet and a kiss, and I said, what did I tell you? It's something like you're my favorite thing in my life or something like that. Like, dude, this was legit, man. Like, I was being sweet. Like, you're the best part of my life or something. And gave her a kiss, and she went, huh. <laughs> but what I was feeling in that moment was the reality that I don't deserve a wife, any wife, much less a good one. Right? Like, if you come to God like this, no, I deserve nothing. I'll screw it all up. Don't let me hold it, Jesus. I'll drop it. That those are the ones that he find glory in the end of this thing. And I struggle so much at this. I struggle so much with this idea, and it's not, again, it's not, you don't have to think highly of yourself to struggle with pride. You get this. We talked about the reality that you don't have to be rich in order to, to, to have an idol of wealth. You don't have to think highly of yourself to struggle with the God of self. Some of those times when I'm most despicable in my self-focus, it's when I feel the worst. That's the problem with this. There's two ditches on either side, and you can find either one of them. You think too highly of yourself. You think too lowly of yourself. How about just quit thinking about yourself? We focus on ourselves and we wish we were more. We wish we were greater. We hate the things we see in the mirror. We hate the words that come out of our mouth. We hate the job that we have. How about you just quit focusing on yourself? Keep your eyes so fixated on Jesus Christ and his glory. That's the answer to these things. That's the call that he's placed on our lives. In Romans 12, Paul talks about the reality that we're not to esteem ourselves too highly, but to just glorify God in the grace that he gives, knowing that anything good that you have in this life, it was all a result of him. That's the truth. Pretty girls, you know why you're pretty? Because of God. And frankly, some of the stuff you do just makes you less pretty. The gifts that God has given you, if you're pretty, it's from God. If you're smart, who gave you that mind? It's from God. If you're dumb, who gave you that mind? God. If you're unattractive, God, I don't know. It's, he's done these works in your life. He's brought you to these places. He's given you the gifts that he's determined to give you. You say, yeah, well, I work hard at it, right? Like, well, maybe I'm fit because I exercise and I eat healthier. Maybe I'm smart because I do Sudoku all day and I work on my mind or whatever it is. I work hard to get the job that I got or whatever. Sudoku makes you smarter, Corey. Don't smirk. And so, but, so, who led you to that place? Who gave you the energy to exercise this? Who determined that you would be born here where you could spend your life exercising and eating keto instead of being in Israel or instead of being in India or instead of being in Africa or instead of being some other place where little children are learned to carry rifles? It's all the working of God. There's no room for pride in any place in this. And yet we get so consumed with the God of self that we find ourselves stepping over each other. Golly, i got to speed up. Okay, then Jesus said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. This could be the mantra of your life. It shall not be so among you. The world seeks after comfort. It shall not be so among you. The world demands that you put some respect on their name. It shall not be so with you. The world seeks the path of easiness and comfort. It shall not be so with you. The world seeks to control others with whatever power they have. It shall not be so among you. This is the reality. This is the way. 
What's the point in having power? What's the point in having authority in the eyes of the world if you're not going to exercise it over the people around you? And again, you don't have to have real power and authority in order to try and hold it over people. You want to know the people that I just almost a sure litmus test. Someone that I know has no authority, no power, no control anywhere in their lives. It's the one that is awful to the car hop at Sonic. I don't get to tell anybody what to do at work. My wife doesn't respect me. My kids don't obey me. But I'm telling you right now, that lady at the pickup line at the elementary school, she better get her stuff together or she is going to feel my wrath. That's what we do. Somebody gives us a little glimmer of some power, a little glimmer of some authority, and we're going to exercise it, and we're going to exercise it hard, and you're going to know who is the boss. This isn't the way. It shall not be so with you. This is the path. Whoever among you would be great must be servant. And whoever among you would be first must be slave to all. This is like the welcoming of the little children, the most insignificant members of the community. You must be willing to serve them. You must be willing to lay down your lives and serve them no matter what the cost is. Listen, this call again, he's saying, whoever among you would be great. It's not wrong to want to be great in the kingdom of God. It is not an honorable or a noble thing to want to be sorry and last and to have your life completely wasted. That is not the thing that God has called us to. It's that we seek the wrong type of significance in the wrong kind of ways. He's saying the way that you would be great is you would lay down your life. Diakonos is the word here for, uh, for servant. This isn't talking specifically about that. This is where we get the word deacon from within the church. He's not talking about that specific office, that official office. He's talking about the kinds of men that God would call to be deacons. Those that would serve and they wouldn't worry about who gets the attention. They wouldn't worry about who gets the credit. They would lay down their lives and do whatever needs to be done. He also says you must be a slave to all. Slave is a doulos. That's one that was not just a servant, but a bond servant, one that is no longer their own. Not only do they do the thing that needs to be done, they don't get to call the shots. They belong to another, purchased at a price, no longer their own, no longer able to do what seems right in their own lives. This is the picture of what he has called people to do. This is the path to greatness. This is the way to be great, knowing that we follow the one that did this very thing. I don't have time to read it, but go home and read Philippians 2, the idea that Jesus Christ, leaving the glories of heaven, even if he had came and be born to the greatest family in all the earth, even if he received all the wealth of the earth, even if he took a mighty throne amongst all the men of the earth, you still need to know how much Jesus Christ condescended to be born of a man. To come and take flesh upon himself, to be the son of a woman, to come and being just like you and I, absent sin, frail, weak, able to die. The condescension of Jesus Christ, even if he was the greatest man you ever knew, that would still not be anything like the glories of heaven which he deserved, which he left for our sake. But he didn't. He wasn't born to a rich family. He was born a servant. He came and he served others. He came there on the night of the Last Supper and he says, I've come to wash your feet. This is a picture. This wasn't just, a, this wasn't just an act. You know, this time of year... We get into Holy Week and we have these pictures where there's lots of pastors that they're doing these foot washing services where they wash the feet of their congregation. And that's cool. I don't, I'm, I'm willing to touch your feet. I'm not worried about all that. But my prayer for every single one of those pastors is may you serve them all year long and not just in that moment. Just as I call you men, as you take, if you come to the Lord's Supper table on those days, on those nights, and you serve your family, and I urge you, let this not be the only time you lead your family spiritually. This isn't just a show for Jesus Christ. He wasn't washing their feet as some kind of over-the-top show. This was the direction of his life to the very point of death as he laid down his life for the sake of these, for the sake of these very same men that were grumbling on this night. He would lay down his life that they may be saved. Dear friends, that is my desire for us, that we would look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would look to Jesus Christ and to him alone, and that we would live like that, laying down our lives, outdoing one another and showing honor. 
looking to God at every moment at every day and every opportunity saying God I am yours wholly and completely use me up pour me out ring me out till there's nothing left that your ultimate desire in this life is that you would be used of God even in just a moment even if you would just be found to be an arrow that he fires one time against the enemies of heaven that you would say there's more glory in that singular moment than in all the praise of the world for the rest of my life that you would say every single moment God use me up now and you look on the back side of that moment you go oh I'm still here well then do it again that the direction, the trajectory, that every moment of your entire life would be nothing more than a string of seconds in which God is using you up. A string of seconds in which you say, now I die. I'm still here? Well, then I'm going to die again and again and again and again and again. Constantly dying to self. Constantly laying down your life. Constantly being used up of God. And then if you still stand here tomorrow, then we'll do it all again then. That's the call of our lives. That's the call to greatness in the kingdom of God. That is my plan for us as a people. That is my call for us as a people. And I plead to God because we can't do it. We sit here in this place and we want to do it. It's only through his working in us. It's only as we behold his glorious face in his word. It's only as he transforms us in worship. That is the only way this thing is going to happen. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this glorious truth, Father, that it is only by your working that men, not only may we be saved, but that we may be useful in your kingdom, that we may be found great, that we may be used for your glory, knowing that you lead us towards glory. We thank you that it is all in your hands and not in ours. Because, Father, we are weak and we are selfish and we are prideful and we do not endure well. So, Father, my prayer is that as a result of our encounter with you today, that we would be changed, that we would be strengthened and that you would be glorified. Father, we pray that you would be glorified now in the words that we sing. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.